Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Aleph Beta Quarantined. I'm your host, Imu Shalev. Almost every workplace has been significantly impacted by the situation, and Aleph Beta is no exception. Our projects, everything we were doing, they were kind of thrown out the window as we started to figure out how we could be more useful to schools, communities, to all of you. This podcast is a big part of that. But we've been impacted a bit more directly than just our day-to-day operations. Because much of our team is in the New York, New Jersey area, we've had a few staff members struggle with the virus directly. Our director of content, he got sick with COVID a few days after Perm. But thankfully, after some flu-like symptoms, he has recovered. The parent of another staff member was diagnosed with COVID, and we're praying for his speedy recovery every day. The trouble is, this disease is so long. One day you have a mild fever and a cough, the next day, you still have a mild fever and a cough. The day after that, maybe it's a little bit worse or a little bit better. It takes a really long time to find out if you're in the clear or if you're in more danger. No one on our staff has felt that more than Malka Allweis, our director of marketing, whose husband has had a particularly bad bout of COVID-19 for more than two weeks. Today, we're going to hear Malka's story. Malka, how have things been going for you these past few weeks? Okay. So as you know, I have four kids. My oldest just turned six, actually. Then I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-month-old. Both me and my husband might work full-time, and our jobs still require regular normal hours during the quarantine. And given the ages of my kids, they're not old enough to be even remotely self-sufficient. So um, early on, when things first started closing, um, we made the difficult decision to send the three older ones, the six, four, and two-year-old, to relatives out of state that aren't in like heat zones. And we thought, you know, it would be a week, maybe two weeks that we could still work and then we'll pick them up and school will start again. Uh, We definitely didn't realize how long that projection was. So now we're on day 16, um, not being without kids. It's my two-year-old's first time ever being away from home. And the states that they're in all issued a mandate this week that we're not allowed to cross state lines. So that's stressful. And that's because you're in the New York, New Jersey area and your kids are not. Exactly. We're in Teaneck and it still looks from the news that this is like the worst city in New Jersey even that's affected. And it's not just a statistic for us too, because my husband actually has coronavirus and he got it 16 days ago and he still has it. Wow. So... In retrospect, it was definitely the right decision sending the kids away, but I have I have both challenges. I still have a baby at home, so I'm not like kid free and able to focus on that, but I'm also missing half my family. So that's the main struggle that we have right now. And what's that like, um, you know, these last two weeks away from your kids, how are you staying in touch with them? How is it to be away from them? That's a really good question. Actually, um, for me, that's... I feel even guilty saying it, but that actually is the most difficult thing for me in this whole process, even though that's fairly normal. Like there's been other situations in the world when there hasn't been a global pandemic that people are separated from their children. And even with my husband being to the ER three times this week, the hardest thing for me is being separate from my kids. Um, And when I tried to think about why that is, I realized that we've been through difficult times, scary times, even sadder times than what's happening right now. But you know that like oasis that you build um, like within your home, that like warm, cozy feeling that I don't know, kind of is like the meaning of life that even if you had a super tough day at the end of the day, when you look in your kids' bedrooms and you see them 
sleeping there and you kiss them goodnight, you know, like for that moment, like all is Mm -hmm. calm, life is good. Everybody's under one roof. So I think the hardest thing for me is not having that sense of harmony at the end of the day. Like with my Mm -hmm. children in multiple states, there's like this constant feeling of uneasiness that I think like every mother feels in a home with empty beds. So I think for me, like until I have that completeness of like everyone tucked in their beds, I don't think I'm ever going to sleep. So I think that's, that's the main struggle for me. Wow. That sounds really, 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 really hard. And like an unanticipated kind of hard, right? Like you're like, oh, the kids are, kids are away. Um, you know, it feels well, like people tell me it's so much easier, probably like, how would you ever yeah. be able to have a sick husband with all four children home? Yeah, I get it. At, at my heart, that's not, that doesn't make things easier. And I, I totally know what you mean by, uh, seeing your kids sleeping in bed at night, making it all okay. And not, not having that sounds really, really difficult. You, you mentioned that your, your husband is sick and you've been to the ER three times. What's, what's going on there? Yeah, it's kind of nuts because I remember like at the beginning of coronavirus and we all kind of didn't know if if just like the germaphobes were overreacting or if like this is something we need to do something for. And we were like all in the kitchen, my whole family. And my husband was actually the one who said, like, we probably all had this already. Like, if we get it, like we're young, we're healthy. It's like so not a big deal. Like he was the first one who voiced that. And on perm, I had a cold, and I remember saying to my husband, because he always gets whatever I get times a million. I don't know, maybe that's just like a husband thing. Like, I had this thing and, like, worked and was taking care of all the kids, and then he has something and he's, like, dead. So I had a cold on perm, and, like, in jest, I said to him, hey, Mike, just a heads up, I have a cold today, so in a week from now, you're going to have a fever. He did not appreciate that. Um, <laughs> and then, I don't know if it's related. It seems like a coincidence now. But on Sunday, the Sunday after perm, March 15th, he actually drove... 10 hours that day driving the kids to different relatives and when he came back he'd say you know I I don't feel so well and he had a fever I still has fever but um he got a fever that day March 15th wait March 15th is when he had fever today is March 31st and he still has fever yeah it's not as bad it's not his main symptom but it's just like brutally long the main thing is that the coronavirus which turned out to be got to his lungs and so he has pretty bad pneumonia and he's having a lot of trouble breathing so there was a lot of ups and downs there's points where he was super sick with fever chills like couldn't function but now it's really just about being over two weeks out and still not being able to move or breathe or you know he has like that little oximeter thing that people have and he's like checking his oxygen every 30 minutes and we're just trying to avoid the hospital the hospitals are really crazy right now and we're just taking it one day at a time wow so malka you said you're on day 16 lots of fever in and out of the er what's going on for you guys right now it's a hard question like i get this question from my relatives probably six times a day when i check my phone in the morning i already have like six missed calls like everyone's looking for news like what's going on now how's today different than yesterday it was really, there was a lot of differences in the beginning days, but the past week has just been disappointingly the same. Like my husband says to me, like, when am I going to feel better? Like nothing's changing. We're not doing anything, but he's just on the couch and he's can't read because he's so dizzy. And it's just constant. Everything's the same, actually. I, the answer is things are, are just paused, I would say. That sounds really, really scary. How are you guys making it through the days? When you say it like that, it makes me realize that it does sound, everything you said, really terrible and awful. It kind of makes me think of, so I feel like this is giving me the opportunity to tell this journey that I'm currently in as a story. And as a story, it sounds 
oh my gosh, this is crazy and funny. Like, how are you functioning in four little kids, a sick husband, you're working full time, there's a baby on your lap. But in real life, when like you're living the day to day, that's not the narrative. The narrative is almost the same as probably what everybody else is going through. I'm getting up every day. I wake up for my kids FaceTiming me in the morning before at like an ungodly hour, even though they're not here. I brush my teeth. Life is normal. It's just on paper, there's like a crazy amount that's going on. So that question like kind of caught me off guard because I don't feel that way inside. I guess, I mean, that's great to hear. I would imagine if I were in your position, I'd have a lot of fear. And I know personally from talking to you um, these past few weeks that uh, you've been pretty resolute. Can you share with us how how you and Mike are are dealing with fear, keeping fear at bay? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I don't think fear like plays out so much. There's moments that are extremely scary. Like there was a point in the hospital where like we were going to the hospital because you go to the hospital when you're sick to make sure that you're okay. We weren't going to the hospital because we thought if we didn't go to the hospital, he'd be dead. When he went to the hospital and he just asked the doctor like how things are going, the doctor said to him, you know, based on your stuff, I don't think you're going to die. And like that just like shook us because we're like, we weren't, that wasn't what we meant. Like dying wasn't even on our radar. And now he tells us, oh, don't worry, I don't think you're going to die. And then I kind of reframed the whole thing, like brought us back to being scared. And I feel like there's moments like that where you're like, wait, this is the real deal. I'm like, it's scary to not be able to breathe. But in general, fear is not the main thing. Um, we're exhausted. We're frustrated. We are sad. But we're not really so afraid. It's actually kind of liberating. For me personally, and I keep saying this to my husband, so hopefully like he'll, I don't know, through osmosis, like he'll feel this way too. But to me, like this is going to be a long journey, this coronavirus thing. Like I don't know when we're going to hit peak or when schools are going to open or how long it's going to be till we get a vaccine. And knowing that my family in here has already been compromised by coronavirus, it's kind of liberating. You know, once he recovers, like I have this image in my head that like God willing he'll recover and then he'll be this like legit superhero. He can like plow through grocery stores untainted and he'll be like our designated shopper. He can just like other people are living in this fear at the beginning of, you know, the monsoon where like, what's going to happen? Who do I know is going to get afflicted? What's what, how's it going to affect me? And to so much at the beginning of this pandemic to already be affected by it um, makes me really hopeful that even if we have months and months of quarantine, our insular family is going to be done with this. I know there was that one case where the guy had coronavirus, then didn't have it, then got it again. But like, I, I don't think you can get it again. That's really funny. And uh, I think a positive way of seeing it and, and hopeful also. I could tell you something really fun that happened. Um, fun Please. is like a weird word now, though. Um, it's fun given the circumstances. So my birthday was a week from today. Um, Tuesday, last Tuesday was my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. And my husband spent the entire day in the ER and his phone died. So I like called the nurses every <sighs> few hours. Obviously, right? Like who brings a charger to the hospital and like, I don't know, classic. I, I couldn't be upset because he's sick, but it, it was a frustratingly classic situation. Um, <laughs> but it was my birthday and my kids really wanted to do something special. So I attended my own Zoom birthday party while my husband was in the hospital, unreachable. Um, and I kept like commuting myself to try to like take calls and like call the hospital and find out what's going on and then like unmute and like be back at the party. And 
my kids like were so excited. They like held up these like presents that they made me like to the screen. Oh. And my daughter like put on a little magic show. And then my grandmother led like a movement class. And like we topped off the party with this, like I shared my screen and like the audio and we had this like crazy dance party. And then like I said bye to everyone and like I got in the car and picked him up from the ER. And it was just like such a surreal kind of like the emotions were real. Like I had a really good time at the party, but it was just like a realization of like the weirdness of the reality that I was living. I don't know. It's like very jarring. It is weird. It's very weird. And and just like I you know, talking to you, I think you're a special person. I think that other people would go through this in a really different way. And every time I talk to you, you sound level-headed and like present with your husband at the times that need presence present you know with your kids when they need you and like I don't know how you personally get through it but uh you're a really strong person Malka thanks for sharing this story with us hey thank you so maybe I'm just enjoying this because Mike can't like talk more than two sentences without being out of breath so like I'm just gonna like explode all my stories here (laughs) but Uh, This is funny. Uh, Basically, on Saturday night, I was getting a cup of water and I dropped a glass and like glass shattered like all over my kitchen. Oh my, oh my God. It's just like the tragedies keep coming in your household. (laughs) So I like, I I just looked at the glass like all over the floor and I'm just like walked out of the kitchen. In our family, like it's just a given that it it doesn't happen often, but if anything breaks, like Mike's daughter comes with like the plastic bag, picks up the pieces, tells all the kids and me to get out of the room, sweeps it up, you know, like that's his area. So it's been 16 days of me like pulling like all the weight and it's not his fault. So I'm not judging him, but I've done like, all the cleaning, all the cooking, all the childcare. Cause I still have an infant at home and I'm working like 10 hour days and pay stocks somehow coming. And so I just like looked at this glass, walked out and today's Tuesday, the glass is still like all over my kitchen. Like I have to like dodge it when I go to the fridge, but I kind of feel really good about it. Cause to me, it makes it feel like it's like testament to the fact that I believe like he's going to be well enough soon enough to pick it up. Like, Maybe tomorrow morning he'll pick it up. Like, it's waiting for him. Like, when he's healthy, he will pick up all those pieces in my kitchen. And, like, this is glass all over my kitchen. We'll we'll see what happens. Don't try that at home. It's not safe. That's an amazing story. You mentioned that you're working 10-hour days. That's crazy. Does your employer not understand the situation you're in? Like, what kind of jerks do you work for? No, it's funny. You're asking about work because... um, as you know, um, I just started this job two months ago um, after being on maternity leave. And it's funny to think about it now, but I was worried about sending my baby to daycare and like what would happen after 3.30 when all my other kids came home from school and I still had to tie things up at work. And look, like now I'm clocking 10 hour days with a baby on my lap the entire time because my husband's not even allowed to be in the same room as her. And like the children I used to mute in late day meetings are like now totally normal and expected. So like, sure, it's kind of crazy. Like how the heck are we supposed to like be full-time parents, full-time wives, full-time housekeepers and work full-time. But for me, it kind of feels awesome um, that the world is all struggling with the same thing at the same time. And it's super empowering. Like Yesterday, the day before, uh, I think it was on Thursday, like I led a meeting, a complete meeting, all while breastfeeding my kid. Like, that's cool. Everybody's doing that across the globe. Like, this isn't like I need to like turn off my video and pretend my child's not here and mute them. It was so cool. I was on a call last week where every single person on my call, there were six people on the call and every single person had a baby on their lap. 
when does that ever happen? Like, I feel like as a woman, like I'm always trying to like pretend the children don't exist when there's work things. Like you have to separate your work and home life. And like, everyone knows you prioritize your family, but you have to pretend you prioritize work. And it's really cool and empowering for me, especially with such a young baby where like she does need to nurse for me and be with me constantly to be in an environment where no one's making accommodations for me. It's just the new normal that everybody's dealing with. And it's not like a favor I'm asking. That feels good. I don't know how I'm going to do it every day, but um, for the past 16 days, it's been really empowering, actually. Can you say a little bit more about that? And I personally am curious because at Aleph Beta, we have a policy that, you know, if you have coronavirus or if you're taking care of someone with coronavirus, you can take off and receive paid time off for that time. And, you know, you haven't really done a whole lot of that. You're, you're still at work every day. Can you tell me why? I appreciate that policy. I think it's amazing. There's two things at play here. One is that one of my biggest fears right now dealing with this is that we're going to get through this. Mike's going to be better in a few days. And then the second he gets better, it's I'm going to be next because I've been in this house. And then there's going to be two more weeks of me being sick. And realistically, no matter how kind Aleph Beta is, I'll like, take off as much time as you need. I realistically don't think I can take off to care for my husband for two weeks and then take care when I'm sick for two weeks. So like I'm holding on to the not going to get sick, but I'm very cautious to use such a policy because it's so contagious. That's number one. Um, number two is that it's amazing that there's these accommodations for coronavirus and for caring for family members with coronavirus. Just like being totally honest, once I'm reunited with all four of my children, working is going to be way harder than it is right now with a sick husband on the couch. So I feel personally very strange. Like I might need to use some of my vacation days once all my kids are home and my parents are like, I never want to watch these kids again. It's been exhausting. And then I somehow need to figure out how to juggle all over again. So I feel like as nice as Olive Beta is, I don't want to take advantage and I want to be able to be in a position that when I need things, they'll be there for me. And people understand that if my husband needs me, I'm going to move away from the computer and make him a cup of tea. I'm not neglecting him. But for me personally, my normal life is a little bit more crazy than my current life. So I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing okay. Amazing. Thank you, Malcolm, so much for joining me and for, for sharing your story with us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Hi, folks. Emu here again. I just want to take a moment to reflect on Malka's story. Malka is a friend of mine, and for me, it's been wild to sometimes feel really scared on those nights where she let me know she was taking her husband to the ER, and other times to feel calmed by her attitude and her perspective. But what comes to mind most for me right now is the sheer number of stories of how this disease is affecting us. There are people who are sick. There are people whose husbands are sick. There are people whose husbands are sick and find themselves separated from their children. There are people without jobs, people on the front lines. It's just a lot. And as I said in another episode, I think it's the empathy that matters. Empathy can move us to help those in need, whether it's sending pizza to healthcare workers or picking up the phone to call someone you care about. And I think, in a subtle way, empathy binds us together spiritually. One more story is one more thread in our web of connection. As a people, we are what we care about what we pray about. So thanks to all of you for being a part of the Aleph Beta community. Before we go, I wanted to play you something Pesach related. It's a weird year. 
Normally during these days before the holiday, many of us are learning and preparing for the Seder. But this year, it can be hard to find the time. So I wanted to tell you about one particular series of videos that I think is so moving and inspiring that it can actually transform your Seder. You can find the rest of the series on our site, and we'll link to that video in our description. But for now, here's a snippet. Magid. The word literally means retelling a story. This supposedly is the part of the Haggadah dedicated to actually retelling the Exodus story. But look how it begins. Halach ma'anya. This is the bread of affliction, poor man's bread, the bread we used to eat in Egypt. This is the part where we hold up the matzah for everybody to see and we explain what it is. What's the main point of this paragraph? Well, we seem to be quite literally pointing to, and explaining, a central symbol of the Seder that's about to unfold. Here is the matzah. Here's what it means. All right, that's great, but let's ask ourselves a reading comprehension question over here. What's this doing here? We're supposed to be telling a story, right? Pointing at matzah doesn't seem to be telling a story. But maybe we are beginning a story in a certain kind of way. We're pointing to a concrete thing, a food, that's going to tell the story to come not just in words, but in flavors and in textures. The matzah is setting the tone or the flavor, if you will, for the story to come. So maybe it is a reasonable way to begin the Seder. All right. The next paragraph is Manishtana, four questions, in which a child remarks on how very different this night seems from others during the year. How is this paragraph connected to the last one? Well, we just held up the matzah, we called everybody's attention to one of the main symbols of the night, and our children notice that there's something out of the ordinary going on tonight. They want to understand. In a sense, these questions create the opportunity for a story, a story that we will soon tell. All right, so Manishtana isn't yet the story, it's a precursor to it. The story we tell is going to be couched as an answer to a set of questions. This question-and-answer format is a pedagogical model that the rabbis lay out in the Talmud. We, as parents, have an obligation to tell the story of the Exodus to our kids. But the rabbis knew that the best way to engage our children is to first give them the opportunity to ask their own questions. So this paragraph is giving the children a chance to do just that helping them get engaged in the story we're about to tell. All right, let's move on. The next paragraph is Avadim Hayinu. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God took us out of there. Wait a minute, that seems like a story. Has Magid, the storytelling part of the Haggadah, really finally begun? Well, in a sense, it has. When we say that one sentence, we have, in essence, just told the entire story. We were once slaves, now we're free. So you might be thinking, if we've gone and done that already, if that's the story, well, you know, we've finished our business, let's just close up shop and bring out the soup and brisket, let the meal begin. Why don't we do that? Well, maybe the rest of the paragraph here is actually explaining why we don't just do that. The next thing we say in the Haggadah is, had God not taken us out, we'd still be in Egypt. In other words, these events that happened so long ago, they're not just bygone events in history, mere curiosities of times past. They have profound consequences for you and me sitting right here, right now. If it were not for the Exodus, Israel as an independent nation would never have come to be. 
We would have been a perpetual class of slaves and eventually would have probably assimilated into the host culture. You and I would never be sitting here today had the Exodus not happened. And therefore, therefore, we need to do more than perfunctorily dispense with the story. It's not enough to just summarize the Exodus story in a line and move on to the meal. No, no matter how knowledgeable or wise we all are, no matter how many times we've heard the story before, we need to elaborate on it, flesh it out, make it come alive. We need to delve into the story because it's this story that changed everything for us. The author of the Haggadah here is providing a rationale for what comes next, a reason why the meal won't be coming yet for another few hours. In other words, this paragraph is really the beginning of a meta-story, a story about the telling of the Exodus story. Here's why we do things this way, little Jimmy and little Debbie. We are learning why the story is important and why we're going to spend a lot of time telling it. So what happens next? Do we start telling the Exodus story now? Well, no, actually we don't. The next paragraphs actually continue the meta-story. They continue to talk about telling the Exodus story. We get a little episode about some sages from the Talmud at Bnei Brak who told the Exodus story on the Seder night in so much depth and detail that they stayed up all night doing it. And that paragraph is really just illustrating the last point, right? That no matter how much you know, you just have to lose yourself in the telling of the Exodus story. It has to be all-encompassing. The meta-story then continues with the next paragraph in the Haggadah, the Four Sons. You see, if the previous paragraph told us how much to tell the Exodus story, this next paragraph tells us how to tell the story. Because the rabbis noticed that the Torah tells you not once, but four different times that you have to tell the Exodus story to your kids. From there, they drew the idea that there are actually four different ways to tell the story. The story needs to be tailored to the needs of the listener, to the needs of each kid. In all of these paragraphs, and for that matter, the ones that follow, we're not yet really getting to the actual story of the Exodus. We're telling the meta-story. We're being given pointers as to how to tell the Exodus story. We don't have anything that really sounds like an Exodus story in the Haggadah until we get to these words. Once upon a time, our ancestors were idol worshippers. Well, that's a proper way to start a story, quite literally with you know, once upon a time. And in fact, the Exodus story really does begin at this moment, at least in a way. Yeah, we're starting from all the way at the beginning, even before Abraham. And yeah, there are still some confusing paragraphs in the Haggadah beyond this point, but, but it does seem fair to say that the meta-story is now over. The actual story is beginning. This is where the action really begins. So as you sit down to the Seder this year, keep your eye on the ball. Until now, we talked about how important it is to retell the Exodus, how much we have to retell it, how we have to retell it, when you have to retell it, but we haven't yet actually retold it until right here. This is the beginning. If you're intrigued, I hope you'll check out the rest of this video. Click the link in the description to watch this video. And visit alephbeta.org for more meaningful videos on Pesach.